0: school leadership podcast with Jeff Barton hello there welcome to our May 2018 podcast which deals with two uh, really important issues one of which perhaps used to kind of feel on the margins but it's definitely central and that's inclusion special needs education high needs funding all of those kind of issues which people are talking about quite rightly a lot more and then we move on to another issue which is of particular concern in the maintained sector and that is the disappearance of the arts in too many schools driven partly by a narrow curriculum partly by funding pressures and so we talk about the importance of those before wrapping up with Professor Mick Waters who I bumped into at a conference in the West Midlands and he is irrepressible as ever uh, reflects on the English education system compared to the Welsh education system and as always has some really interesting insights hope you enjoy it
1: Anna Cole I'm the parliamentary and inclusion specialist for ASCOL So there's this
0: Education Select Committee inquiry. Just give us a flavour A, what an Education Select Committee is and why they do inquiries.
1: So it's a cross-party group of MPs. Um, This one's chaired by a Conservative MP, but they have Labour MPs, Lib Dems. Um, and they look at all sorts of issues to do with education, and there are actually lots of inquiries at the moment, and they've recently announced one on special educational needs.
0: Yeah. And so this is a committee which is essentially holding government to account, is asking questions, probing it, and calling on expert witnesses, is it Absolutely.
1: The so they, they, they set out these inquiries, and then they will they will be responded to by a wide range of people, so people within education, but also other people, to shine a light on particular issues.
0: And just in terms of the whole inclusion uh, agenda, uh, we're at an odd point, aren't we? Because we hear the bad stuff about uh, off-rolling and exclusions, but we also hear good stuff. So we hear that things which used to not get talked about very much are now being talked about. So alternative provision, for example, is being talked about. What's your view of where where we might be in terms of all of this?
1: That's such an interesting question, and I think there's so many answers to that question but i think it's great that we're talking about it it's great that we're shining a light on the way schools deal with children who have bad behaviour or the way schools deal with children with special educational needs and i i think we're maybe at a point where we're talking about this more, but also we have issues around funding particularly and, and a fragmented system and how you can create good systems that support all learners and are, and create inclusive schools within a real terms funding cuts and a very fragmented system is difficult. So I think it's great we're talking about it, but I think there's a lot to be done.
0: And overall, are you, from where you sit, feeling optimistic or neutral or pessimistic?
1: Oh, I... I'm a a natural optimist and I remain optimistic um, and I work with such fantastic people and I know there are fantastic people working in this area and there are schools doing fantastic work. But I think as well there is a long way to go uh, in in lots of ways.
0: And I guess uh, in a self-improving system it is kind of over to us, isn't it, to do what we can for the most vulnerable children?
1: Absolutely. And I think what's come out of this morning um, really strongly for me is that all schools in a local area need to be responsible for all learners in their area, and we need to work out systems that enable schools to do that. And I think in a fragmented system, particularly when the, we're we're seeing real term funding cuts, that is a massive challenge. But I think we can't, you know, we can't shy away from it.
0: Anna Cole, thank you.
1: Margaret Mulholland, director of Swiss
2: Cottage Teaching School Alliance, and Sandra Rascal.
0: Well, great to see you. Tell us a little bit about uh, your teaching school alliance and the school at the heart of it.
2: Um, Swiss Cottage is a special school, a large special school with um, children who have a, a great range of needs, both from what would be traditionally known as moderate learning difficulties through to what's now described as profound and multiple learning difficulties so a whole array of children who require inclusion and inclusive teaching and learning just as much as children in a mainstream setting and we work with schools that are both mainstream and special and we believe that that's a key role for us in in sort of supporting young people with special educational needs no matter where they're located
0: and how does that show up in terms of teaching schools work What does it mean that you're able to do through that wider network?
2: I think lots of different things, actually. I mean, one of the priorities we... Give ourselves, I suppose is initial teacher training, so we work with what would be up to five six hundred trainee teachers a year to support their understanding special educational needs. so we invite in we have our own small group of um, school direct, but we also work with IOE with the London Diocesan board with Harris academies with uh, all sorts of different skits um, and universities in order to support the opportunity to engage with the special school and understand that um, young people uh, are supported to learn effectively in a mainstream classroom and in a special classroom and that the practices are not that different and in fact actually looking at young people when their their needs are acute can really help developing teachers to Think about the learner first and, and bring the teaching in to follow up. So what I mean by that is they actually think about what does this learner need to access and understand what I'm doing today? How can I develop my lesson planning to support that learner and when often when you're training to teach you're thinking very much about yourself and the mechanics that you go through, the process of your yourself within the planning so I always think it's um, coming into a special school when you're training to teach it's a bit like there's a catalytic effect, Mm. a catalyst to think about learning as opposed to teaching. And once you do that, once you make that step, your teaching follows and becomes more effective.
0: It's though? interesting because I've, I've been listening to you this afternoon. The way you talk about something which too often can feel like it's talked about in a language which we don't recognise and feels a bit on the margins, you, you, you always talk about it in terms of learning. And so one of the points I think I heard you say earlier is that actually any teacher... Uh, with any class, or to be thinking in terms of the most vulnerable child as the starting point, just just kind of reflect on that,
2: yes, definitely, I think um you know when you're when we're helping teachers to uh, plan their their teach their lesson. It actually often what they do is they pitch to the middle, um, and it's great to talk to young teachers about this, whether it's NQTs, recently qualified teachers, or trainee teachers, and ask them about you know so what about these um, more vulnerable learners on the on the edges, the periphery of your lesson? How would that lesson accommodate them? And actually, often they have all the answers. You know they have the competence and the confidence, but actually their expectations are often that I I think I'm expected to teach to the middle, I I think I'm expected to pitch my lesson higher Um, and and what we often do is we work backwards through the lessons together and we think about the fact that when they've perhaps done some directed teaching um, some of the class aren't able to access that, now if that directed teaching could have been um, unpicked and um, pitched a bit lower maybe or explained in a different way, then the accessibility to that lesson is greater. So everybody in the room knows what they're working on and why. And then the teacher can stretch and challenge instead of running around the room trying to mop up those who didn't understand what was going on. So very basic things like that are sometimes really great to explore with those developing teachers. So I'd say that's one of the things that we do quite well as a teaching school. I think also I just wanted to say that we also work with leaders and leadership development. And one of the things that's great about our leadership programs is that actually we bring mainstream and special together. And often our mainstream colleagues who are, say, aspiring head teachers are actually listening to really uh, effective special heads, working with them being mentored by them and starting to understand themselves, maybe coming at it from differently than a developing or trainee teacher, actually coming in as a head, actually, why am I not working with my local special head? Or what is it that my leadership requires in terms of inclusive teaching and learning, inclusive leadership? You know, um, I think that dialogue between head teachers um, at regional at a regional level is really, really important. So I think when you're learning to be a leader, you need that exposure to a network that's very rich and diverse.
0: I love all this. It's all about leadership. It's all about learning, and that applies to every child, every teacher, every leader. So Margaret Mulholland, thank you. Thank you.
3: My name is Pat Bullen, and I'm the East Midlands SEN Regional. Coordinator for the local authorities in East Midlands. So,
0: give us a flavour of what that involves.
3: Um, it's about trying to, I suppose, implement the vision of the Children and Families Act 2014 that's person centred, that will result in better longer term outcomes for children and young people, um, supporting those SEN support as well as those with education, health, and care plans, and trying to work with local areas to better joint commission. Between local authorities and clinical commissioning groups (CCGs),
0: and that act was a big deal in the sense, wasn't it? Because it was, if I understand it correctly, it was it was full of kind of ambition to make sure that the most vulnerable children were getting better provision than perhaps they had done before. Essentially, yes. it, how is that working out?
3: Um, it's a bit variable, really, Jeff, because 27 out of 52 local areas now have a written statement of action, which means that the vision of the Children and Families Act is not completely in place, and the common areas of difficulty in, in local authorities and CCGs is based around um, a lack of strategic leadership for SEND, and inclus- inclusive practice, um, a failure to joint commission provision effectively across areas.
0: And so you work... You, you work at a kind of uh, local level and regional level, mm-hmm. but you also still make sure you're working with schools directly, yeah, don't you? Absolutely. When, when you see uh, schools that are working together and doing the right thing for those vulnerable children, what kind of things are you seeing?
3: Um, I'm seeing schools that do look at strengths-based practice, so they're looking at what interests the young person and building on those strengths as well as seeing the deficits in their need profile. Um, and that's mainstream schools as much as special providers. Um, I'm seeing those schools looking really at the longer term outcomes for young people, so they're thinking about preparation for adulthood and they're looking at the community inclusion of the young person as well as their educational needs and well-being.
0: Um, one of the things the Act reminds us about is that our concept of the child essentially extends. We're talking about people mm-hmm. up to the age of 25. Yeah. And I think I heard you saying that actually some of those figures, in terms of children who might have learning difficulties, then moving into employment pretty bleak, aren't they, in, in some cases?
3: They are. They, we've been hovering at around 6% for children and young people when they enter adulthood and, um, and try to get into employment, actually being effective in getting into employment. So if you've got a physical disability, there's about a 50% likelihood of you being in, emplo- in employment as an adult. But if you have a learning disability, then you're much more likely 94% of adults won't have an employment opportunity or a job. And
0: finally, you you, you mentioned a survey that you looked at which asked uh, young people what is it they wanted to do uh, when they get to the age of 25 or, or when they become young adults. Yes. They were children, if I understand it correctly, who had learning, they'd been diagnosed with learning difficulties, and yet I think I'm right in saying they were saying exactly what we would think any child might want. Just just tell me about that survey.
3: Yeah, that survey looked at what 19 to 25-year-olds want, and they want the same things, to paraphrase the Lamb inquiry, the ordinary lives that we all want. So they wanted friends and relationships, they wanted to be at university or in work and employment, um, they wanted to be able to um, have things to do in their leisure time that were accessible to them. So again, all of those things that I described as the ingredients for an ordinary and a good yeah. life.
4: Bullen, thank you very much.
3: Thank
4: you. Uh, Chris Mackrim, head teacher at William Howard School up in Cumbria. And when you say up in Cumbria, we're talking a long way, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, right up next to the Scottish border. So <laughs> our catchment area takes all the way from the Solway Firth to the middle of the country
0: to where you get to Northumberland's border, actually. Well, I remember you giving me a flavour of. Because you, you've got three schools in the Trust. I Six schools in the Trust. Six schools in the Trust. And how long
4: does it take to get between some of them? Well, from ourselves over to Workington Academy would take a good hour and 15 minutes, and that's on a good day with no traffic issues whatsoever. Down to T-Bay, school would also take about an hour. So that'd be the extremes, really, from
0: our own school in Brampton. This must be quite a challenge in terms of creating a kind of coherence across what you're doing, or do you you not worry too much about whether School A is distinctively different from School B? Is that not really the point of it? I think... The
4: catchphrase we use is there's autonomy, but also similarity. Okay. So we have similar policies, we have similar systems, but we're all autonomous schools because we serve
0: quite different communities. Yeah. Now, you've always had a, a strong commitment to inclusion. That's why we're here today, we've been talking about inclusion. So what is it uh, at one of your schools, or some of those schools, or all of those schools, you, you do to kind of put the rhetoric of inclusion in action? What would we see there?
4: Well, I think the main thing is to understand where we come from in the first place. We truly are comprehensive schools because most students don't have, in terms of my school, any choice but to attend my school because there's no bus routes, there's no public transport. So if they don't get the school bus provided by the council into the school, they don't get out of home. So therefore we end up with everything from millionaires down to the most disadvantaged going. You end up with a full spectrum of incredibly intelligent Uh, oxbridge candidates down to people with quite difficult uh, learning learning difficulties and therefore our policy is it's it is about everybody's teacher send because they have to be Uh, we have an sld unit inside the school and we just make sure that we provide for them the best way
0: that we can within the resources we have And presumably that means that the kind of work you do in uh, inducting teachers, training teachers, gives particular emphasis to that inclusive approach in the classroom?
4: Yeah, and one of the big things that we do is we do teaching learning briefings weekly and SEND comes up, I would say, one in two weeks uh, because we have such a diverse school community. Whether... It is the learning needs of the most able or the very weakest or it's the students with physical disabilities. Every one of those students is in a normal classroom and therefore teachers need to know how to provide for them in the best possible
0: way. And finally, I, I, as you know, I was head of a rural school but not quite as rural as the ones you've worked in. What are the, uh, the joys of rural schools? Because sometimes we just we kind of hear about you know, coastal schools and rural schools and they're presented as problematic. What do you particularly like about working in a rural education? Honestly, the
4: main thing is the diversity. You are truly a comprehensive school. We do not have much competition with our local schools. Actually, that means we can collaborate better with them. But it's the sense of community. Everybody's part of a community there. And you need to understand all those little diverse communities inside 362 square miles. There's a lot of diverse communities out there but you are truly the centre point of that catchment area because there isn't really anything else out there uh, for for the communities to hook around. We are the central point, and therefore the performing arts provision, the musical provision, the sporting activities, you do become a hub of a much wider community, and it's fantastic that we're able to provide
0: what we do to the students. Chris, thank you.
5: Nick Corston, a dad and co-founder of a social enterprise called Steamco
0: and just tell us a bit about Steamco
5: Steamco, blimey, well it's a project I kicked off in my son's primary school St Saviour's in Paddington about 8 or 9 years ago Um, realising that primary teachers couldn't do it all and I was passionate about creativity given my background I thought how can the community work with teachers local business people local creatives to give children an incredible school day and we we run these things called steam co days which are like mini creativity festivals really
0: and give us a flavour of what what happens for those people who haven't seen the videos of rockets uh, flying through the skies well if you can find me somebody who hasn't seen one of my films
5: (laughs) Jeff Jeff, I'll be amazed (laughs) Uh, No, I mean, basically, a Steamco day is to find, if you like, as a school day like no other. It's a day of 20 creative thinking and doing activities that the children are free to choose. It might be coding, it might be making paper rockets with with a a dad or a mum. It might be spin painting, it might be newspaper engineering, improv. And what's particularly interesting, actually, we're, we're finding often teachers run activities on these days using resources or ideas that they've had but haven't been able to use in their day-to-day practice so it gives teachers a creative expression opportunity as well.
0: You are evangelical about the importance of creativity and you bring an urgency to it as if it's being you know, squeezed out of schools and it's disappearing. Uh, wh- why does creativity matter so much?
5: Why does creativity matter so much to me? Well, well basically it fueled the first half of my career. I mean I had my elevator pitch I've got a master's degree in electronic engineering. I've got a grade AA level design and a big mouth. So I spent the first half of my career selling advertising, marketing, product technology, digital advertising. And then then I went to a festival Camp Bessel, which is kind of like Glastonbury for families and guardian readers like me, and and thought, how can we bring this creative experience into my children's school? Because I know the value of creativity in business. I saw that Ken Robinson TED talk. It wasn't rocket science to me. It was fantastic. It was inspiring. Um, And it seemed like a no-brainer to try and sell creativity in
0: the second half of my career, and here I am. And uh, just one, one last thing. You visit lots and lots of schools And what you'll see is those schools which have got creativity at their heart and they manage to do it, like that school in Seacroft, I remember talking to the head there, without sacrificing academic rigour. I mean, that's a completely polarising argument that what they would argue is that you get success academically by also having creativity hand in hand with it. Is that your view? And if so, what kind of leaders do we need to make it happen? Well, I'd say
5: one thing, i will stop you dead in your tracks there. I've got absolutely no time for polarising conversations. I've got a hashtag binary ed thinking. Um, I've got no time for the skills versus versus knowledge nonsense. I mean, how can you expect or, or prescribe one without the other? Um, and maybe it's just an easy option to say we need a little bit of both. Um, I mean, I've, I work in some remarkable schools. Um, one really comes to mind up in Sunderland actually, I mean here we are in the Houses of Parliament and event being shared by Sharon Hodgson, who's the, um, the um, MP for, uh, for West Sunderland. And there's a school at Northern Saints Primary and we did some work with, with the children there. And the head teacher came up to me at the end of the... In fact, we had an evening, one of our community evenings, a whole community, parents, artists, engineers, business people came in for an evening. And he, caught, he took, took me aside, Steve Williamson, the head teacher there, and said, Ofsted are clear. They celebrate creativity, but it takes a brave leader. Now, it takes a brave leader whether you're, you're in, in the battlefield, it takes a brave leader in business to stand up and drive your business forward, to innovate, to outpace your competitors. And it takes very, very brave leaders in schools because there are there are you know there are varying views on what's and why creativity and the arts are under pressure in schools but at the end of the day the best leaders know that creativity the arts engage certain young people and not others it engages engages communities it engages parents but most importantly it can drive overall academic
0: uplift thank you thank
5: you jeff
6: uh, hello, my name is Andrea Zafiraku. I'm an art teacher in Albertson Community School.
0: So tell us a bit about your school.
6: Um, it's a school in Northwest London in Brent. Um, we are an inner city school. Um, our students um, who come to us um, come with approximately 40 languages. Um, we are um, a highly populated school um, in terms of EAL. Um, and we are very diverse. Um, we also have a large proportion of students who are from free school meals. Um, so so we, have, we do live in a very deprived area.
0: Now, I listened to you speaking in Dubai for reasons we're going to mention in just a second. But before we get to that, what you were saying there was that you, you see art and design as an absolute liberator for children from all backgrounds. Just talk me through that.
6: I think with art there's no ceiling, there's no um, language or um, previous skills necessary. It's um, a subject which enables um, anyone um, to um, develop their skills, to um, explore ideas, to explore concepts um, and the beauty about it is that it's not. you don't just need to have a pencil, there are many different um, varieties of media, so you can find something which a child can really engage with and can, and can make it personal to them.
0: Uh, and the reason we're in Dubai is because you uh, were one of the finalists for the Global Teacher uh, Award, and you won it. I mean, your life must have been turned on its head,
6: isn't it? <laughs> it's been a whirlwind. I it bet. has changed dramatically. Um, and it's just, been, it's just been incredible, really, what I've experienced and um, the, um, the momentum and, and um, the power of, of what this award has brought. So in terms of um, raising the profile for teachers, I feel that as a teacher now, um, I've got a wonderful responsibility and also a voice to make sure that um, we are celebrated in societies all over the world, that our, um, that our practice and that our profession is respected and honoured as it is the most noble profession. Um, But not only that, I'm quite fortunate that I'm an art teacher and um, I would never have thought that an art teacher would have won um, this particular type of teaching award.
0: Why would you not have thought that?
6: Because I think um, there's been quite a lot of focus on the STEM subjects, um, and um, being one of the only finalists with who has got the arts, I, I, you know, I honestly thought that this was this was not going to be our year. However, um, I am now aware that there is something in the air to do with bringing back the arts. That um, the molecules and all the universe are aligning. That we now have this movement. That there is so much enthusiasm. There's so much um, support to make sure that art is a. Solid subject in our curriculums.
0: I remember writing something for the TS just before Christmas, actually, which people talked about, which was show me a great school and I'll show you a pulsing heart of arts at the heart of it. And that's not to in any way say that you wouldn't see other great stuff going on as well, but the arts have always counted in English education. Two last questions. You Have have got this um, global teacher prize. You've got a million pounds, and you've got a great idea. Just kind of talk about what you're hoping you might do with it.
6: I've I've noticed that many of the students, especially in my school, don't uh, um, aren't exposed to visiting museums or galleries. Um, But I also know that what what is absolutely key for them is having a role model or seeing um, um, a type of profession which they can connect to. So I would like to bring artists and connect them with the schools in the the form of an artist in residence um, organisation whereby I'm connecting both partnerships together. I'm, I'm almost like a matchmaker. Um, I want students to know that within the arts there is incredible potential in terms of careers and opportunities um, but also not only that, the skills which they're going to be learning and enabling them to find what their own identity is.
0: Fantastic. And you're back in school teaching. What's it, What was it like finally just to get back to school? How, what was the reaction?
6: Uh, it's uh, <laughs> Being back in my classroom is my therapy. I think um, <laughs> it's where I feel so much more comfortable. Um, and um, it's just lovely being back in an environment that I, I, I call home, really. It's somewhere that I've been for 12 years. Um, I know every single brick in that building. And um, yeah, it's somewhere where, where I know that what I'm doing um, is having a massive difference.
0: Well Andrew, we were cheering you on in Dubai and people will be where, you know, wherever they were and you've been saying really important things about art education, about social mobility, and perhaps most important about teaching. You are so proud of being a teacher and that I think resonates with so many people, so thank you. Thank you
6: very much,
0: thank you. I'm Mick
7: Waters. And tell us what you do. <laughs> I do all sorts of things. I work at Wolverhampton University and that lets me into schools. I work on some policy work for the Welsh Government which is really fascinating and then I get invited into projects or to do talks at conferences, I'm a busy man.
0: One of the uh, fascinating bits of my job is that I've got to Wales in a way that I hadn't previously and there's all kinds of issues in Wales, bureaucracy, funding and so on, but the optimism they've got around the curriculum I think is extraordinary, give us a flavour of what what, what it feels like from your Uh, point of view.
7: I think uh, Wales is on the cusp of something absolutely terrific, The, uh, the curriculum is starting to emerge and it's really exciting. The work of the National Academy for Educational Leadership is going to blossom soon. There is all sorts of work around teacher education, initial teacher education that's developing. And there is a lot of enthusiasm for the new professional standards for teachers and leaders. Um, What you sense is that uh, there's a sort of upsurge of enthusiasm professionally that people really believe in.
0: Uh, And when you look at the English system, as someone who's been rooted in the
7: curriculum over the years, what
0: what does it feel like?
7: The English system? Uh, Well, I love teachers in the English system. I think somehow it's going to have to be a case of the schools breaking free. Uh, We can't keep chasing each other and looking over our shoulder worrying what the regulator's going to say next. I I think there is uh, something about the feeling that... Of the OECD country, England is becoming one of those oddball characters that people are questioning, really. Uh, and we're doing a lot of good things in England, but folks have got to take control. The profession and got to take
0: that kind of th- that throws a gauntlet down to leaders, doesn't it? Lead- yeah, yeah, leaders yeah, yeah, are feeling yeah, yeah. beleaguered yeah, yeah. in many yeah, yeah, ways. But we, we well, I think bold,
7: yeah, leaders over time have, I think, uh, tried very hard to protect their staff and their communities from some of the pressures that exist and maybe the time is coming to harness the concerns of parents, harness the concerns of youngsters themselves and of their staff and sort of turn the tide, I think there's something about inverting the pyramid turning it round a bit um, and it's a, there's a lot of pressure on leaders, they're at the sort of the thin bit on the uh, egg timer, everything comes through them and, and maybe the They've got to stand up for the system as much as stand up for their own school.
0: Finally, are you getting a sense from all the people you work with that there is that kind of appetite, that essentially we cannot continue in the rather mechanistic way that we've been going? It's time to reprofessionalise the profession.
7: I think uh, the profession's ready now to say, come on then, This, this, this has got to change. We've got better ambition for our youngsters. We want more for our education system. We've got a better picture of the future than is being offered. And uh, I, I think it's that thing about the world's your oyster. You've just got to open the damn thing and get the pearl out.
0: Thanks for that thought for the day. Mick <laughs> Waters, thank you.
7: <laughs> the Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.